Well, hello. Uh, it is 8.01 p.m. Arizona time. 7.01 p.m. Arizona time. I can't think. Um, anyway. <laughs> Daylight savings actually doesn't happen here, so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually this weekend, funny enough. Yeah. Um, uh, can I just say my thoughts on daylight savings towards the rest of the United States? <laughs> that was that laugh. That, that was, was like you couldn't have laughed any better than you just did. I think that was the perfect villain laugh. I don't think I've heard a better villain laugh in my twenty years of life. Yeah, no, Almost no, twenty-one. That's that great. Thank <laughs> wow. you all. Yeah. Voted. Anyways, yeah, the rest of the United States, uh, quote unquote, suck it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh you should at least give them the name of their challenger yes i should give them the name of their challenger first of all w welcome you're listening to the review squared on blaze radio and blaze radio online.com live from the bill austin radio studio in downtown phoenix wow it is friday october 29th happy halloween hooray it's it spooky all of our stories are pretty darn scary if you ask me, but... They always are. Yeah, they always are. Come on, get in. <laughs> yeah, um, today that ends in Y on the review squared. Yes. And, yeah, anyhow, we're actually joined by somebody, too. <gasps> yes, our gracious guest. Uh, you know, I'll just let her just briefly introduce herself real quick. Hi, I'm Nicole Pinter, and uh, this isn't hypothetically speaking. I'm so confused, but we're all here. I know. Isn't it what? weird? Yes, it's the greatest <laughs> showdown. It's... Two shows will enter. One shall leave. Yeah. I know it's dark out, and it's usually not dark out, but but we're all here. Exactly. So two, if two plus two equals four, and five plus five equals ten, then what is this? Right. I mean, because here's the thing, right? The squared in review squared today actually stands for squared up, not um, squared as in the <laughs> math up. term. So we're squaring up. <laughs> Gideon has already challenged me to an on-air fight, <laughs> hey, which we might have to schedule for another time because we do have a show to get to. I'll commentate if you want. Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness, um, Ethan. Um, you're hearing uh, that from... I'll collect funds. Yeah. You're hearing all of this from how much myself, we could, Kirsten Dorman. How much do you think we could have for the uh, the pay-per-view? Oh, no. And this is Ethan Pelland. <laughs> and I'm Gideon Karayuki. And I'm John Brown. Who looks very nervous now that he knows we're gonna fight yeah I know. <laughs> yeah uh, anyways that that was very random we did not plan that one y'all um anyways uh, i'll get right into it and start us off as per usual so this week i'm talking about congressional and legislative redistricting focusing on arizona as is usual on this show this may sound like an extremely nerdy political topic with hard to understand ramifications no. that's because it is <laughs> Ethan, <laughs> shut up. Uh, but hopefully once I lay it out to you, it, it will make way more sense why I'd have a whole segment on this here. So let's define some important terms before we get started. So I'm not speaking uh, French at you. So what is redistricting anyway? It is when the lines of the districts we use to re elect representatives to legislative bodies like Congress, state legislatures, and city councils are changed in order to equalize the population in each. That is legally required to happen following the census once every 10 years since a, ser since, a, uh, since a series of Supreme Court decisions in the 1960s. Say that five times fast. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, and we just had a census last year in 2020, if you forgot. So it's that time of the decade again. But before redistricting is the pro process of apportionment, at least for Congress where the 435 seats of the Federal House of Representatives are allocated by population to each state. For example, after the 2020 census, 
Arizona, much to the surprise of many people, kept its seat count in the House at nine, while Texas gained two seats and West Virginia lost one. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Broadly speaking, there are two models used for redistricting. The most common and controversial of these is letting the state legislature do it, which 33 states currently do so in some form. This creates the problem of having people with a direct interest in manipulating the process for their own gain, picking the voters that will be in their district rather than the voters choosing them fairly. That is what gerrymandering is. Uh, So more recently, more states are moving to the other model of redistricting, commissions. These come in uh, multiple forms, either advisory commissions, backup commissions in case of a deadlock for those primarily in charge, bipartisan commissions, and independent commissions. So, to bring it back to Arizona, we use an independent commission in Arizona. And this was created after a ballot initiative in 2000, uh, Prop 106, passed. The explanation of how it works is that a majority, the, ma- the majority and minority leadership in both houses of the legislature is given a pool of candidates to choose from after people apply for it. These lawmakers then select one person each to be placed on the commission for a total of four people two from both the majority and minority parties. These four commissioners then will choose a chair of the commission from the applicant pool, who is not a member of either party represented on the commission. Now that there are five commissioners after this process, they can start on their work of creating a new map for Arizona's congressional delegation and the state legislative districts. The process in Arizona starts with a grid map, which is required and used to ensure that the new districts are truly new and not based on the previous map that is actually not allowed in the state. Hmm. This step, which happened back in September, had the consultants for the commission, who do the actual map drawing as the commissions give them parameters to work with, just create two maps with only equal population and compactness as considerations. A congressional map with nine districts and a legislative map with 30 districts. Following this, the commission receives public comment and mapping proposals from across the state at meetings on how to adjust the grid maps. This too has already passed, ending in early October. That leads to the next stage, which is where the commissioners start adjusting these grid maps, working through the other criteria mandated by the state constitution, such as respecting communities of interest, adherence to the Voting Rights Act, geographical and political boundaries, and compactness and contiguity. And they take all these criteria and all these ideas they receive from the public and kind of put them in the blender and start... uh, flying out multiple proposals and voting through them and kind of talking amongst themselves about them. At the end of this stage, the commissioners approve a draft map. And that is actually just what concluded on Thursday. So yesterday, this is still very new news here. After working through multiple versions of draft maps, both were approved by the commission unanimously, but that obscures the conflicts a little bit over it. The districts proposed in Southern Arizona for the legislature, along with some in Maricopa County also drawn for the legislature, have been the subject of conflict between some of the commissioners, for instance. And it should be noted that this is merely a starting point, though. What is next is that these maps will face 30 days of public review before coming back for tweaks and final approval sometime in December. The draft congressional map creates four somewhat competitive congressional districts, two of those being toss-ups while giving the Republicans three safe seats and the Democrats two safe seats. For the legislative map, four somewhat competitive districts are made, two more are toss-ups, 
with 13 being safe Republican and 11 remaining being safe Democrat. Once again, I really want to emphasize not final maps. And you two can actually weigh in. They'll be releasing the dates really soon on when public comment on the draft maps are going to be, uh, uh, when they're taking public comment on these maps that already exist. If you have any strong interest in that, which trust me, you to some degree, everybody does. But if, if you particularly look at those maps and you're like, I don't like being placed in this darn congressional district or legislative district, I think it's unfair or I like them. You can get to tell them and they'll be releasing the dates really soon. Uh, to end this segment, I just want to do a whole thanks and attribution. So thanks to Jeremy Duda at the Arizona Mayor for the invaluable and comprehensive coverage of the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission's proceedings up until this point, which is almost all of what I cited when talking about the commission itself. The Independent Redistricting's own commission's own website was also a source for the details of its own structure. Also, thanks to the Loyola Law School and the League of Women Voters for their explainers on redistricting, which I used to help explain it. With all of that said, panel, any questions or thoughts about this? Um, I, I just want to echo your um, thoughts about Jeremy Duda. Um, I work on Arizona Horizon, and Jeremy Duda has been a guest several times. Um, he, is he is from the Arizona Mirror, and I think his reporting is fantastic. So Gideon, yeah, I just want to echo that. Like, There are so many good local reporters here in Phoenix who are doing such a great job of covering this. Oh, yeah, and, and not as extensively, at, at least on the topic I'm talking about, is Duda. He is, mm -hmm. uh, if any of you are, uh, are specifically want to follow the process as it is happening, his Twitter account, he live tweets the proceedings of the Independent Redistricting Commission, so. And support local journalism. Exactly. All the way. <laughs> yeah, anything else, friends, thoughts? on redistricting, on anything I just said, anything tangentially related to it? Um, really basic take, but gerrymandering, bad. Gerrymandering, very bad. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, a big believer. I agree with you, Kirsten. I'm a big <laughs> believer in, you know, we should pick the politicians, not the politicians pick us. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you are someone who feels like you need to gerrymander in order to keep your job, maybe you're not as good as it, at it as you think. Well, it's just such a, a conflict <laughs> of interest to have the people who are being elected then drawing the, their own electoral districts. Yeah, I think exactly. It's, no, sorry, Kirsten. Uh, I think it's far much. It's a far better system to have an, in, an independent redistricting commission in place. Although, of course, since that's not the case, as we say in 33 states or more, because I'm sure that not all of them have in, the other 17 have IDCs. It's not a good idea for unilateral disarmament as well. So Exactly. I couldn't agree more. But the ideal is to get to more like what we have here in Arizona. It's not perfect, but I think it's a lot better. And these the people who are on these commissions do not they still have an interest, but they don't have as direct of a personal interest as literally being elect like choosing your own district. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Like in fact, to be on the independent redistricting commission you literally cannot have been in elected office for the past three years, even as low as a mm -hmm. precinct committeeman. You can't yeah. even have hold, held that position. Which you think would have been a failsafe that is like a no-brainer to in-state. But, yeah, you know, sometimes no matter what institution it is, it just feels like the trend <laughs> tends to be um, if it makes too much sense, we won't do it. 
and that you can apply that to just about anything i feel oh yeah that is this oh it is so much the truth it it's really unfortunate too and yeah i'm just glad arizona is doing something right for once yeah for once uh and yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how this goes i recommend you do follow this process if you have any interest um at all because trust me uh if you're this is one of those things where if you're not on the table you're at the you're on the menu so highly recommend if you do have the time just pop into one of these things that they, 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 you can they've had a lot of the previous comments even being streamed remotely so if they're not where you are or any you can still log on and check them out so thank you all so much i'm gonna hand it to john for the next story Thank you, Gideon. And my story is going to be about none other than Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema or Kirsten Cinema. Excuse me. I was going to say I do not share any <laughs> with this person. <laughs> Sorry, I too I many disrespect. too many Kirstens, Kirstens in my yeah. life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, fair enough. I would rather your default be Kirsten. It's the better name, in my opinion. Uh, no bias. <laughs> on that note, Democratic uh, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema told a constituent to do not touch me when she confronted the legislator in an airport. She was walking with Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Um, the incident was all captured on video and posted the social media, making this the second time this month that she was confronted in the airport. If you recall um, earlier that she was confronted in a bathroom right here on campus at University Center at Arizona State University. Um, the video begins as Cinema is walking through the airport with Senator Tim Scott. Um, she is escorted, and uh, a woman approaches her and says, in quote, I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and I'm wondering, I know you've met with dozens of lobbyists. And Cinema turns, and she basically looks at the woman, and she's like, don't touch me, um, and then turns back and keeps talking to Tim Scott. And then the woman goes ahead and responds, quote, I did not touch you, and then basically continues to tell cinema that in quote i know you're meeting with dozens of lobbyists and talking with corporate donors about the package um basically this package uh um this is from newsweek it's referring to the democrats human infrastructure infrastructure excuse me package that is currently under negotiation in congress um cinema and democratic west virginia senator joe manchin um have been in deep waters, not only with President Biden, but with also with the United States and Congress as well. Um, and then the woman goes on to ask Cinema, in quote, how many times will you meet with constituents? How many times have you met with constituents in negotiating bills that are like this? Um, and then she goes ahead and tells Sen Senator Tim Scott, sorry about this, um, who's referring to the woman that is asking her a question. And this is essentially one of cinema's, it's not essentially, it is one of cinema's constituents. So um, Kirsten Cinema has been known to not take questions from the media, um, from her constituents. Um, and she won't explain her reasoning why, which is what makes her um, quite different than Senator Joe Manchin, because at least Senator Joe Manchin will explain why he disagrees with a certain policy and will give an actual rationale, whereas Kirsten Cinema just doesn't take questions. And, you know, the argument will come out, you know, it's not the right time to confront her at an airport or at when she was at a wedding or when she's in Arizona, but she doesn't hold town halls. She doesn't hold public forums. 
and she doesn't take questions from the media. And she made a smart remark um, asking her about why she voted for something. And she said the Senate as like a smart remark. And, you know, that makes a lot of her constituents mad, as I can see. People have raised money for her and they wanted her in public office because they thought she was going to make um, an actual change. And people are actually calling her a Republican now, um, which kind of doesn't seem far off based of what her policies are. So, you know, I would, I'd be a little different if she would actually hold some town halls and public forums, but she doesn't even do that. She just avoids all questions and she just doesn't give a rationale to why she's voting this way, which I think makes people so mad. So we'll see. I, you know, my take is I definitely don't think she'll be back as a senator. There's no way. Unless she's so wildly unpopular, it seems I would be shocked. I mean, I don't even think she's anywhere near the least popular politician in the state. Uh, uh, Arizona's going through a moment right now where we just kind of hate everybody. But uh, not Kelly, though. I mean, oh yeah, except Mark Kelly. But even funny enough, I think both from everything I've seen, the actual numbers that have been polled, if I remember correctly, the last time I've seen approval ratings. That Cinema and Kelly have similar approval rate. They both they're both above water. Mm-hmm. Like Cinema's approach has some f- people who favor it. However, a lot of those people I don't think will vote for her because she has absurdly high approval ratings among Republicans. Uh, who, you know, I, I think uh, are voting for her. For her. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I don't. I honestly don't think she can get mad when people confront her in the airport or at a wedding. Um, I mean, it's to be expected. I mean, you're not answering anyone's questions and people are fed up with you. I mean, if I raised money and you're not, you're not, you're a public servant, you are elected to serve the public and you're not even doing that and you're not even taking questions. Just think about if every senator that we had in the United States didn't take questions from anyone where would we be, essentially? It's like, it's I mean, ridiculous to even think about it's it. It's part of the job description. It is. Plainly. You think it, you really think it is, but here you have the senior senator from Arizona deciding, I'm not taking questions. I'm not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, isn't there another, there's another, I think, senator or congressperson who there are seven teenagers on a hunger strike right now in regards to climate change. And uh, there was a video that I saw on TikTok very recently where one of those teenagers confronted the congressman and he essentially was like, oh, well, just call my office, call my office, you know, come into my office. And in response, this teenager was like, well, listen, you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are calling your office. Nobody's getting anywhere with you. Um, We can't make an appointment with you. We've been trying. I'm here now. I've been fasting for several days i'm on a hunger strike and i am begging you to listen to me and he just kind of walks away yeah and that doesn't shock me because let me tell you me either yeah let me tell you the the simple fact of the situation is and i don't think anyone wants to acknowledge this because the implications of this are quite bleak yeah um is the average person is so wholly disconnected from the political process People in Washington don't listen to anybody who doesn't have dollar signs, uh, you know, following their name, basically. I mean, cinema has been really listening to Big Pharma, 
She's taken in hundreds of thousands of dollars from them. She'll take questions from them. Oh, yeah. And she's actually one of the Democrats who's killing prescription price reform um, for Medicare, which will just let Medicare negotiate prices for pharmaceutical drugs. Gideon, that's communism. Yes, apparently it is communism to say, (laughs) hey, maybe big pharma shouldn't price gouge uh, the federal government over drugs that seniors need. But free market, right? Yeah, free market where I, where I am free to get fleeced. Um, <laughs> apparent, well, not only I, but the entire public. By the way, if you have a job, you're probably paying FICA taxes, which part of which goes towards Medicare. So very fun and cool that cinema is pro, uh, is simply kind of a crook here on that issue. I, I feel comfortable enough saying that. If cinema has a problem, cinema or any of her defenders have a problem with that, I'd love to hear from the senator. Maybe she'll talk to me. Gideon, that would require cinema to interact with the public. <laughs> yeah, Gideon, I highly, I highly doubt that she will. Um, yeah. Because as you know, she doesn't take questions from anyone. She doesn't give a rationale to literally anything. No, she does um, not. And you know what? If the senator enjoys losing in 2024 because she's because she has no people left but a handful of white suburbanites, then so be it, I guess. She might, even, <laughs> she might even change parties. Well, I mean, I mean, theoretically. Well, I don't think let's it's be likely. Real. She's. Um, wait, sorry, what did you say, Gideon? I say I don't think it's likely. No, she'll stay dead. She'll stay Democrat. I think, honestly, if I, I, you know, I don't like playing these kind of prediction games on live air, but I'm just gonna do it today. Honestly, if you had to ask me, what's the most likely thing right now? She's either getting primaried or she wins the wins renomination in three years, uh, unless something changes. She's losing. Like there is, mm-hmm. I just do not see a path where Kirsten Cinema has a second term as senator at oh, this goodness. point. Well, hmm. we shall see. Um, are we going to take? Well, that's it for my segment. I don't know if anyone else has anything else to add, but uh, Gideon, are we going to take a quick break? Yeah, we'll take a really quick break. We'll be back on the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. Stay tuned. All right. Well, it is 7.25 on Friday night. What better time to hear me talk about sanctions? <laughs> Something that is everyone's favorite thing to discuss and quite in keeping with theme, a very spooky topic. Although it actually really is in Washington Sends right now. Sends down your spine. <laughs> sanctions. Um, so sort of the, uh, the precipice for this is that the Treasury Department released uh, last week a very uh, significant, large report. Um, so I'm going to do my best to sort of break down why, the, why this report was released on sanctions by the Treasury Department, some of the implications, the reaction, and just a little bit of my own personal thoughts. So the reason why this uh, this is this report is basically an examination of the last few decades of American sanction policy, um, sort of try, looking at the effectiveness of it, the sort of initiation or the reason why initially the Biden administration said that they were doing so, and especially Janet Yellen, who's the current Treasury Secretary, was um, was COVID nineteen, the pandemic, they. This was something that was discussed throughout the pandemic was that U.S. sanctions were 
possibly, and I would say very much so, impacting the ability of certain nations to adequately respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so the Biden administration said they were going to do a review, and that report was released a week ago. Now, the thing is, is one of the things that's been pointed out is that COVID is not mentioned in the report. So the entire original, so it's, I mean, I don't really know why, but they didn't really talk about COVID at all in the report. Um, instead, unfortunately, I and mean, I think it's good. I mean, this, this report that they put out is certainly more than the Trump administration ever did. But still, the report is very light. It's detailed, but there's just really no reflection. And that was the main sort of reaction that I saw to it. It's very standard sort of making the sort of typical, like this is the five main conclusions. I'll just read them. Uh, number one was adoption of a structured policy framework that links sanctions to a clear policy objective. Like these are the things that they're saying, main conclusions, reforms moving forward. Emphasize multilateral coordination wherever possible is number two. Number three is calibration of sanctions to mitigate unintended economic, political, and humanitarian impact. Number four, ensuring sanctions are easily understood, enforceable, and where possible, reversible. And number five was investment in modernizing treasuries, sanctions, technology, workforce, and infrastructure. None of that's very transformative. Uh, it's very typical. And then so it's, it's, to me at least, it's very much so a letdown. And uh, unfortunately, um, they're, this seems sort of by design. Uh, I have a quote here during a October 19th hearing about the report. Uh, Senator John uh, Ossoff from uh, Georgia asked Deputy Treasury Secretary uh, the Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adamayo, for one or two specific examples where U.S. sanctions have been effective in order to improve the statutes that govern these policies. This was his response. The review was focused on the idea of us looking into the future. He added, we did not spend time looking at the individual sanctions policies. Uh, is, what? Yeah. Um, now, here's the thing. Sanctions are, I think it's been pretty accurately described that the U.S. is addicted to sanctions at this point. And basically, any time the U.S. government right now sort of faces a foreign inconvenience or adversary, the default sort of response is to rely on some sort of sanctions. It's, I, I think it's rather that though the discourse on sanctions, and this is just more of a personal opinion, is rather reductive in the sense that for the most part, Washington think tanks and sort of the more policy, a lot like the, the more elite, uh, I guess, establishment aligned think tanks mostly don't really take a very critical look at sanctions. But on the other end, most of these sort of um, sanction skeptics over exaggerate at times the impact of sanctions and ignore the, the already existent problems in countries where they exist. But what I think it's very clear right now is sanctions, we're over relying on sanctions, and sanctions are just. Not really effective. So I have this re this report, and this is from 2008, um, but the this report was published in the Economic Sanctions Reviewed, which stated, of the 200 instances from 1914 to 2008 that were examined for this book, 16 sanctions regimes were determined to have not only had their stated goal achieved, but that the sanctions themselves were the instrumental uh, factor in achieving that goal. So that's about a success rate of about 10%. Oh, boy. Now, and the thing is, 
do I think that there should be no sanctions? I don't think anyone really thinks that there should not. Sanctions can be a useful tool, but I think sanctions are, are more useful, it seems, in punishing certain individuals or in a sense making sure that, for, for instance, you know, criminals or drug gangs or, um, you know, or political leaders who are, who are using their, their position to engage in corruption, siphon money. It can be effective in the sense of punishing individual behavior in a sense not allowing them to profit off of it. It's not effective really in changing state behavior. And that's what this study showed. It's about a 10% success rate. And just think, you know, in the public discourse over the last few years, what have the big sort of things been when we've talked about sanctions? Iran's nuclear program, Venezuela's um, sort of political crisis, North Korea's nuclear program, Russia's evasion of Crimea, and the uh, of, of Crimea and Georgia. Have any of those states' behaviors changed? No, not a single one. Not no. a single one. They're, the only instance really has been that Iran came to the negotiating table over its nuclear program. But also, the U.S. left the Iran nuclear deal and then pursued further sanctions. Uh, this was called the maximum pressure campaign. And just a side note, Maximum pressure is probably one of the worst aspects of Trump's foreign policy in the sense that it caused immense amounts of problems and suffering amongst the, the civilian populations of these countries and actually honestly made the situations actively worse. So Iran continued to pursue nuclear enrichment even as the sanctions completely annihilated their economy, um, limited, their, limited their ability to respond to the pandemic. And they, despite this, they still continued. Russia's not retreated from, from Ukraine. They're still supporting actives. They're still supporting violent, violent separatist groups in Ukraine. They're still active in Syria. The Syrian government has not changed its policies. It's just clear to me. Maximum pressure does not work. And we really need to be more reflective because there's a very immense human cost to sanctions, especially the very wide-ranging ones that we pursued against Russia, against um, sectoral sanctions. When they're targeted against entire sort of large sectors of the economy, it's maybe not, I don't think it's the intended goal. It's not like you know, I'm like saying that the U.S. is just, you know, the U.S. government isn't just trying to make Russian civilians' lives worse or Venezuelan lives worse. The thing is, though, if the calculus is, if we know that sanctions are not going to cause a government to change its policy fundamentally, then why are we pursuing the sanctions? Individual, if we're pursuing sectoral sanctions and we know that we're not going to reach the, reach the goal, then we're causing a lot of suffering for actually no reason. And that's what makes this so frustrating, is this report doesn't really deal with that. Like, as he's saying, they didn't really examine the effectiveness of sanctions in individual cases. They just looked at more so the implementation. This is a very bureaucratic thing. And that's what I guess I just wanted to say, is this was a bureaucratic, typical sort of review and not what Biden was promising. And this has happened a lot, though, with Biden's foreign policy thus far, is Biden makes promises and talks about sort of good things that could be implemented, but then it just evolves into sort of this bureaucratic lethargy and then just produces these sorts of reports. I think that sort of the final takeaway that before maybe like a little bit of conversation amongst us is sanctions are not working as it currently stands and there really needs to be critical examination because we're becoming way too reliant on them as almost a default response. And so does, does anyone have any thoughts or, or like specific instances they want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is normally used by a lot of the uh, hardline critics of sanctions, even the more 
the less quote-unquote hardline ones on the Iraq situation back in the 90s. I know that's very infamous in, in the world of international relations of just being, well, there was other stuff going on and we just don't have, I don't have the time to explain the situation in Iraq in that era and I'm not an expert on it, but yeah, like those sanctions, we can for sure say they definitely did make things better. Iraq was already in a hole by that point and the sanctions were the basically the just keep digging and by just keep digging I mean helped accelerate a famine so yes sanctions honestly do not change I like sanctions do not cause regime change I don't think there's really been a single instance where you could say that sanctions actually led to a change in change in state behavior or regime change yeah, no, it's just, it, it, it's just, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity, you know, it's keep just... on doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And that seems to be American foreign policy, especially as regards sanctions. Yes. And so it was a good sort of, it was, it was a good attempt initially at first, it seemed, but unfortunately, we've once again sort of reached this non-conclusion with no reflection. It just stuns me that they said in the, like the, the, literally the person who's in charge of doing this says, the review was focused on the idea of us looking into the future. We'd not spend time looking at the individual sanctions policies. So what was the point of the report? Yeah. It, what that dude is saying, for those of you at home who are like, wait, what is this dude saying? What this dude is saying is, we really didn't do that much in terms of actually reviewing anything. We just want to move on and forget about it. Yeah. It was honestly more focused on improving the effectiveness and the sort of how well the sanction systems works from a functions standpoint, but not at all in terms of the, the costs or the the actual results. It's just how effectively can we sanction, not how effectively are san how effective are sanctions and how do we make sanctions less costly for, for unintended unintended uh, people who are impacted. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ethan. Really. Yes. Uh, I guess we'll hand it off yes. to the next person. Kirsten. Kirsten. Yes. Uh, sorry, I didn't have so much to say. I do <laughs> kind of take your and Ethan's segments a lot of the time to do more listening than anything. Um, I'm a bit guilty of that just because I do feel like I learn a lot. Um, and I'm glad for that. So thank you both for your coverage so far. And thank you, John, also for always bringing entertaining stories in. And this week, I'm not going to lie. This is not the cheeriest story. And I don't even feel like it's appropriate to make any jokes about it being spooky or scary. Um, but some weeks, honestly, figuring out how to open these segments is the toughest part of writing them. And this really is one of those weeks. Um, I guess one way to start is talking about TikTok. Um, a lot of interesting things have come out of TikTok, and I think that's pretty apparent to anyone who uses the app. A lot of strange things have come out of TikTok, in fact, and as we're going to discuss today, a lot of tragedy has been put on display thanks to the platform. One thing that we've discussed as a panel on and off air when it comes to a lot of the cases that we talk about on my segment of the show is the fact that you never truly know someone, right? You might be very familiar with their personality, you might hang out all the time, or you might even live together, but you can never truly be sure of what someone's nature is deep down at their core, at least in my opinion. 
And sometimes we don't even know that about ourselves. You might think you know how you would react in certain situations, but if you think about it, do you really? Parasocial relationships are much the same, if not more. And you know, the people you're following online, you might feel like you know them, but in reality, you know them even less than the people in your everyday life, and many would argue that you don't know them at all. You know a caricature of them that they present on whatever platform you interact with them on. 29-year-old Ali Abulaban went by Jin Kid on the platform TikTok, where he amassed nearly a million followers by making comedy content, some of his most popular videos revolving around the concept of Skyrim NPCs in real life. What fans of Abulan's content could never have guessed was um, coming from just following him online um, was this tragic shooting last Thursday. On Monday, Abulan, Abul, I can't read, Abulaban was arraigned in regards to the shooting deaths of his wife, Anna Abulaban, and her friend, Rayburn Barron. Reportedly, prosecutors said Anna had asked Ali to leave their apartment on October 18th. Louis Marinari, Ali's cousin, told KFMB-TV that Ali was upset in regards to Anna's flourishing social life after they had moved to San Diego earlier this year. Marinari told the, uh, the station that Ali wanted to control Anna and know where she was at all times, but not having that kind of control made him jealous and furious. He said that when Anna spoke to Ali and asked him to leave the apartment on the 18th, Ali had thought that the separation was temporary. Marinari described his cousin as being someone who is very insecure, but said his large followings on TikTok and other platforms may have created a fake reality for him to escape those insecurities, escape his depression, and escape whatever it was that was going on in his head. Unfortunately, he said that same escape may have created the monster who is now being held without bail in a local jail. According to prosecutors, Ali turned, returned to the apartment last Thursday on the 21st and installed an app on the iPad belonging to the couple's five-year-old daughter that allowed him to listen in on conversations. He also allegedly trashed the apartment before leaving. Anna had filed for a restraining order against him and was reportedly seeking a divorce. When he heard Anna and her friend Rayburn laughing through the iPad, Ali allegedly then returned to the apartment just two hours after installing the same app that he listened to them through um, and killed them. At Ali's arraignment on Monday, Deputy District Attorney Taryn Brast said that neighbors heard the gunshots and saw the defendant, Ali, leave the apartment. Brast also said that Ali called his mother and confessed to having killed the two victims. The couple's daughter was reportedly at school when the shooting took place, and it has also been reported that Ali went to pick her up from school. He was uh, found traveling with her on the highway directly afterward and allegedly told her that he had quote-unquote hurt mommy before police apprehended him. Marinari said he and Ali had just met, or had met up just days before the killings. They had known each other and been close since childhood. They didn't just meet, but they had seen each other just days before the killings, and Ali had pulled out, allegedly pulled out a bag of cocaine at that meeting, um, to which Marinari responded, you're going to get us all in trouble. 
And in response, he claims that Ollie said, quote, no one can touch me because I'm Jin Kid. It's really sad to say, but I hate him, Marinari said to KFMB. I have so much anger towards him, and I hope they punish him to the full extent of the law because he deserves it. If found guilty, Ali faces 25 years to life in prison without parole on two counts of first-degree murder. The, the district attorney will also have the opportunity to consider special circumstance allegations in this case, and Ali's preliminary hearing is scheduled for January 5th. Anyone with information on the incident, because this is still, um, it seems to me at least, um, an ongoing investigation, they are still waiting for that preliminary hearing and so still gathering evidence, as it seems, at least from the perspective of what we know as the public. Um, if you have any information on the in incident, you should contact the department's homicide unit at 619-531-2293. Or you can anonymously contact Crime Stoppers at 888-580-8477. This is one case that I just, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to this, if I'm being honest. I read all the stories that I referenced in here and, you know, just, it boggles my mind. I don't know. All these cases kind of tend to, but this specifically boggles my mind as to why the solution to, oh, I heard my wife who wants a divorce from me with another man, obviously the best course of action here is to go do this. It's, it's horrible. Uh, a lot of the stories you, I mean, given your segment, right. are just horrible, but right. just the, you know, I, I guess to kind of paraphrase, uh, Something my a professor of mine uh, in one of my criminology classes uh, said. Uh, the specific track I'm in public policy is law and policy, by the way. That's why I'm taking criminology classes. Mm -hmm. um, but the he would say, you know, if you're gonna if you're doing crime, you know, you're probably not very smart about it. Right. And... Uh, yeah, and this is yeah. There's just so much wrong here. Right. Especially, I think the motive has a lot of people kind of stuck. It has me stuck a little. Because this is another one of those, at least it seems from the outside, from what we know now, to me it seems like this is a, if I can't have you, no one can. And a bit of an entitlement kind of motive, which I think speaks a lot to the way that we raise people, um, specifically the way that we raise men and boys to have this idea that they are entitled to their partners, which leads, in my opinion, sometimes to scenarios like this. It's obviously not the only thing playing a role in these killings, but it definitely, if that, I believe that if that mindset wasn't planted and reinforced at such, from such a young age, we might not see things like this happen as often. And it's also, you know, as you were saying, like, he thought he was kind of invincible because he was this TikTok. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if influencer is the correct word, but I think for on a broader scale, like in, influencers in general just kind of think they're invincible. Um, and it's, you know, the same reason we kind of just prop them up and, you know, like, for what reason? 
we don't, as you were saying, we don't know them. We don't know any of these influencers. Right. We don't know who they actually are, as you said. Um, and it's that, that feeling of invincibility. No one can touch me. And then, as you said, like, just, I'm entitled to everything. Yeah. It's interesting. It all goes together. Yeah. It's interesting to me how we have such strong feelings for these influencers and we will, in a lot of cases, never meet them. If we do, it might be to take a quick picture at like a meet and greet event, you know, and yet a lot of people have such strong attachments to these people who just post content online. And a lot of creators feed into that. They'll say, oh, I love you guys. I love my audience. You know, they will talk to their fans in like Discord channels or on Patreon or in YouTube comments and really be involved in their communities, which can be perfectly innocent, but I know a lot of creators on platforms like YouTube do that specifically so that they can continue to have a career and continue to make money basically off of these parasocial relationships. And I think it's interesting to kind of consider what do the ethics of that look like? Yeah, parasocial relationships broadly are just a messy, messy thing. And social media has really... I mean, I think it's a phenomenon that's existed for as long as we've had mass media, mm-hmm. but like in its specific modern form is so tied to social media. And yeah. it's so much more personal because this person, right, like had over a million followers across several platforms, almost a million on TikTok and then over a million on all the platforms that he has if you add them all together. Right. And I've never heard of him. Yeah. I had him before this. Right. Neither have I. And yet he means a lot to a lot of people. And I think that's with a lot of different influencers like Minecraft YouTubers, right? They have these huge communities built up around them. And yet I had never heard of like Dream, for example, before the cheating scandal and other creators that I watched were talking about it. Um, And so I think it's really interesting that we have all these kind of parasocial bubbles. Yeah, I I agree with what, Nicole, what you were saying. Um, A lot of these influencers and tiktokers and public figures in general we don't know who they really are until we don't know what's happening behind uh the scenes in their private life and Mm -hmm. this that um we only see what perception they give when they're broadcasting out to somewhere and i think it's really important to note that because someone's life can be totally different for better or for better or for worse behind the camera so right And I think it's about time at the end of the show here, as we always do sports at the end. Um, I think it's about time that we hand it off to our special, special guest. And I wish I could end on a much happier note. Uh, Unfortunately, that is not the case. Um, This is a story that has developed uh, since earlier this year, but especially within the last week. Um, I will give just a fair content warning because even just thinking about reading it, my stomach has dropped. Um, to I don't go into details, but there are some, you know, just fair content warning. So in May of 2021, the former video coach of the Chicago Blackhawks from 2008 to 2010, Brad Aldrich, was accused of sexual assault by two unnamed players on the team. One unknown Blackhawk player filed a lawsuit against the team for ignoring the allegations, saying that the incident occurred in May of 2010 during the team's Western Conference final series an eventual Stanley Cup run. At the end of June of 2021, the Blackhawks announced an independent investigation into these allegations. The law firm Jenner and Black led the investigation on the Blackhawks and, on October 26, 2021, released a 107-page report on its findings. 
With the release of this report, the Blackhawks held a press conference where it was announced that no Blackhawks executives involved with the 2010 team will be with the organization going forward. This includes Senior Vice President of Hockey Operation Al McIsaac and General Manager Stan Bowman. Former Blackhawks Assistant General Manager, Manager uh, Kevin, excuse me for pronouncing this wrong, Shevildayoff, Dayoff, Shevildayoff, something like that. Sorry. And head coach Joel Kuenville were let go from their current positions in the league the next day, um, although somewhat apprehensively. It wasn't. It wasn't quick or swift. Both mm. both of these people had denied knowing anything about said allegations earlier this summer. Jonathan Taze and Patrick Kane both took to the podium, uh, Kane via Zoom, in the postgame press conference following Wednesday's game. Both expressed more sympathy towards Stan Bowman losing his job rather than John's, John Doe. Um, I won't read the, the Kane quote. <laughs> Somehow sounded better than the Taze quote, but this was Taze on uh, Bowman and McIsaac. This is from Mark Lazarus. He's a writer for The Athletic. Quote, Stan and Al, they're not directly complicit in the activities that happened. It's not up to me to comment on whether they would like to deal with it differently or not. I have a lot of respect for them as people. They're good people. I will go back to that in a minute. Um, according to the report, the Blackhawks Director of Human Resources revealed that President and CEO John McDonough told her that the group decided not to alert human resources or outside legal counsel or do anything about the incident during the playoffs so as not to, quote, disturb team chemistry. Yeah. During the press conference, it was also said that the team allowed Aldrich to participate in celebrations in the presence of John Doe, um, and an inc incredible act of courage the, on Wednesday, October 27th, a um, few hours following uh, the details of these, uh, this report, Kyle Beach came forward as John Doe. Wow. Beach, who is currently playing in Germany, told TSN, quote, it was a day of many emotions. I cried, I smiled, I laughed, I cried some more. My girlfriend and I, we didn't really know how to feel. We didn't really know how to how to think. Um, he also, it was it's a heartbreaking interview if you can watch it. He said, I'm no, I'm not, ugh. I know I'm not the only one, male or female, and I buried this for 10 years, 11 years, and it's destroyed me from the inside out. And I want everybody to know in the sports world and in the world that you're not alone. That if these, these things happen to you, you need to speak up. Um, Beach also posted on Twitter the next day gratitude for the support he's, support he's being shown, but also said that while the Blackhawks have apologized, quote, my battle is really just beginning as the Blackhawks continue to attempt to destroy my case in court, which they also did in September before the reports were found. Blackhawks owner Rocky Wirtz wrote a letter to Lanny McDonald, chairman of the Hockey Hall, H Hockey Hall of Fame, asking for Brad Aldrich's name to be removed from the Stanley Cup. Um, and I would also like to take this opportunity to say, remove Taze's captaincy from his chest. Um, this has been a hard one personally to follow um, I, for so many others as well, I'm sure. Um, and especially, you know, for any Blackhawks fan, this is just utterly disturbing. And just here, you know, regardless, no one, no one likes Stan Bowman before, but for him not to take any... Uh, you know, accountability for himself. No one took accountability of this. Taze said he knew of the allegations the following, um, knew of the incident the following uh, training camp in 2011. And obviously, you know, now we're sitting here in 2021. Um, just 
really disturbing stuff. If you follow me on Twitter, I dropped many F-bombs <laughs> as, as this report was being <laughs> followed. Um, not a Cronkite student, so I can't do that. Um, but still need a job. But regardless... Um, I think this is the exception. Yes. I yeah, think this is appropriate don't. to drop yeah. an F-bomb or two on. But yeah, not no. on air. Not, well, on, not air. on air. No. Yeah, don't but, do that here. <laughs> but other otherwise, I think so. Because, wow. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that is my response to this. Yeah, just insert expletive here. Uh, yeah. Because, my goodness, just... If that you... is institutional rot. That is just... It, human and institutional rot. Mm-hmm. And I'll say it here right now. I'm sure I've said this before, but I will say it again. If you are someone who is even in passing permissive of behavior like this and permissive of blaming or shaming or ignoring victims, you are part of the problem. In my eyes, you are just as bad as the person who did it. Hard agree. And you do not, under any circumstance, have to feel bad for Stan Bowman for losing his job. No. Uh, the Blackhawks were only fined $2 million. One, uh, at least half of it went to um, local, like, I don't know what to like call organization. it. organization. Yes, to help those uh, affected by sexual assault. Also, I also want to say before we close the National Sexual Assault Hotline, it's free, it's confidential, it's 24-7, R-A-I-N-N, rain.org. It's 800-656-HOPE, H-O-P-E. Um, again, free, confidential. Um, I, I want to end off with that, too. But it's, yeah, this. You are not, if this has happened to you or anything like this has happened to you, you are not less because of it. Yes. And I think that on that on very tragic note uh, we do have to wrap up here nicole i want to thank you so much for coming in today yes, and sharing you. that difficult story yeah, thank everybody. you for having me i wish i came with a more cheery story yeah everybody say thank you nicole thank you nicole, thank you, nicole. thank you thank you for having me yes uh, always glad to have a crossover between this... hypothetically and the review squared who are now temporarily at peace yeah once we get vaughn on here it's going to be the crossover of the century, I'm telling you. Yes. Oh, uh, we will have Vaughn back at some point. They're never that far. Um, anyways, never thank really. you all for listening to the Review Squared this Friday evening. I do want to wish you and yours a happy Halloween. Please be safe this weekend. Yes. Um, yeah, have a spooky, <laughs> spooky fun and safe Halloween. Where can they find us in case they get scared and need somewhere safe on Twitter? Of course, uh, you can find us at... <laughs> review underscore squared review underscore squared on twitter and instagram and we're more way more active on twitter to be honest um and yeah that's it for us we will be back next week with more until then goodbye stay well yeah all that jazz i guess the song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by betty davis and the music you hear is by springtime